I'm really excited about what we're going to be sharing with you today. And I've been teaching on Christian philosophy, and I've dealt with a lot of scriptural issues about our attitude towards God, our view of Him. But then we've also been getting into some, uh, I guess, secular or social type of things and applying the scriptures to that. A Christian needs to have a godly worldview. And so we've been talking about things like homosexuality, abortion. And basically, I'm really focusing now on evolution because uh, I believe that this is an area that the vast majority of Christians have not adopted a Christian philosophy. As a matter of fact, I've seen some um, surveys where it actually says that the majority of pastors will not teach on creationism. And I forget the exact figures, but it's about 50% aren't convinced in creationism themselves. And the others, even some who believe it, won't preach it because they will be considered to be idiots or unscientific. And so they've been cowed by the secular community. And I just believe that this is absolutely essential that we share these things. Right before I introduce my guest, let me just read some quotes. This is by Professor David H. Um, Moline of the Evergreen State College, Olympia, Washington. And uh, there's also Professor Stephen D., and I'm not sure that I can pronounce his name, Schaffersman of the Department of Geology, Rice University, Houston. And they made uh, this statement, such an occurrence, if it verified, would seriously disrupt conventional interpretations of biological and geological history and would support the doctrines of creationism. And I tell you what, if it gets outside of the Bible, I'm not very good at this. But my point is they were talking about that if you could disprove this ancient age of the earth, if creationism can prove that uh, the earth was created to created relatively short period of time ago, it would kill evolution. Here's another um, quote by Professor A.E. Wilder Smith. I had a better time with his name, and it says, uh, One authentic man track found in the same stratum as one authentic uh, brontosaurus track throws out 100 years of evolution teaching. And I believe that we have the ability to prove these things. So today we have a real blessing and a privilege to welcome uh, Dr. Grady McMurtry. I don't know why I have trouble with that, but we are it's glad to have you, brother. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. And let me just introduce you by saying that I saw a DVD that was put out uh, by you on The Waters Cleaved. And I thought it was one of the best presentations on this and about Noah's flood and things that I have ever seen. And the information that I feel that you presented in there really establishes a young earth and, uh, and answers all of these questions that evolution is based on. So we're going to get into that. But before we do it, I know that my uh, viewers will want to say, so who is Dr. Grady McMurtry? McMurtry. McMurtry. And they'll want to know who you are. Call, so call give me, us a little bit of introduction. Call me Dr. Grady. It's easier. <laughs> Dr. Grady. So give us a little bit of introduction. How did you arrive at being a creationist? Have you always believed this? No, I have not. Uh, there are a few Christian scientists who, who have always believed in creation. However, in my case, as in most others, I started off as an evolutionist. I actually grew up uh, in the California, Berkeley uh, area. 
uh, on the campus of Cal Berkeley, going to public school there, learning evolution in the public schools, because that's all they taught in the 50s, but also would spend my time in the paleontology laboratories at the University of California, Berkeley, learning about dinosaurs, fossils, and evolutionary theory as a child. Mm-hmm. And I learned about them so well that by the time I was eight years old, they already started borrowing me from one classroom to the other in the California public school systems to teach the other children really? about dinosaurs, fossils, and evolutionary theory because I knew more about it than the teachers did. So you've had an interest in this since you were a very young child. Well, I've had an interest in science always. And, of course, because I was only being taught one side of the issue. You know, education requires being taught both sides. Critical mm-hmm. thinking requires being taught both sides. Mm-hmm. What's going on in the public schools now is exactly what was going on in the public schools then. They're teaching only one side. It's indoctrination. It's not education. Propaganda, really. Well, it is a form of propaganda, and I do call it that myself on occasion. Uh, However, I went on to go to high school in Washington, D.C., earned a Bachelor of Science at Tennessee, a Master of Science at State University of New York as an evolutionist. So my science degrees specifically are as an evolutionist, and I believed it, and I taught jobs. And so what were those science degrees in? What was the... The Bachelor of Science, well, you have to understand that in in my case, they're very general science degrees. Mm -hmm. Some people specialize. My speciality is being an expert generalist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it gives you a broader view than a person that's that's trained in just a narrow thing. And, of course, some people would say, well, he only knows about this or he only knows about that, but he doesn't know about this. Well, that's not true. I know about this and I know about that. So in medical terms, it'd be like you're a general practitioner rather than specific. I'm not a specialist in the sense that you would think of medically, but by the same token, I have in-depth knowledge in all areas, mm-hmm. and I can stay current at all times, both in evolutionary literature as well as in creation literature. But I, I would go on then to teach evolution from the seventh grade to the university level. However, at the age of 27, I was challenged with, was the evolution that I had taught others and so forth true, or was it not? I became a Christian. And uh, I would go on to get a doctorate, uh, it's called a doctorate of divinity, with a speciality in creation science. I would go on to, uh, just a year and a half ago, get a doctor of letters. So is it this uh, challenge to your evolutionary theory that led you to become a Christian, or were those... Actually, it was the other way. Um, And I think it's typical that uh, first, at the age of 27, I was challenged simply, was Jesus telling the truth or not? It's an ancient argument. You know that as well as I do. It's mm-hmm. been around for 2,000 years. Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, that it's a simple question. And uh, as you might gather, I've got some academic scholastic skills. So I simply attacked that question from a purely analytical scholastical position. Uh, because I've been around Christians all my life, but at 27, I simply said for myself, enough's enough. Either Jesus is telling the truth, he is the Son of God, or he's not, period. Mm-hmm. And so for six months, I did a self-guided study. Although, of course, I look back on it and say, well, the Holy Spirit was guiding yeah. me. But at the time, I was not that aware of it. Okay, mm-hmm. So for me, it was a self-guided study. I didn't have anybody sharing across a coffee table. I didn't have anybody saying, here, read this or read that. I simply took a look at the Bible. I took a look at the histories that are outside of the Bible and so forth. And after six months of diligent study, came to the conclusion that Jesus was telling the truth. And awesome. so in a room entirely by myself the Holy Spirit being present, but no other person, mm-hmm. I decided to become a Christian. That's a good choice. And I you know, think it's, so too. It's, I think it's a really good point that you're making, too, that uh, Christianity isn't just a total leap of faith in the dark. If you really analyze the facts, it leads to Jesus being who he said he was. Well, Christianity is the only rational, reasonable, logical, right. evidence-based faith in the world. 
So what did this do to your evolutionary model when you became a Christian? Well, that's just it. Um, first of all, I knew so little about Christianity. I went to an associate pastor at a church near where we lived and explained the story of what had happened in a longer way. And he said, so your decision is firm. And I said, if you knew me, you wouldn't ask the question. And he said, okay. And then he simply showed me about making it public and being baptized, and, and I was. But, of course, that left me with a huge, huge problem. It simply made me a saved evolutionist. Mm -hmm. Now I'm smart enough to know I've got a problem. So what I did was I spent 16 additional months of simply evaluating the question, had God used evolution to create what we see around us? Was everything that I had learned okay and taught others was okay? Or was what I had learned and taught others wrong? And that, in fact, God had really had created 6,000 years ago, as it says in the Bible. And at the end of 16 months, I came to the realization that there's absolutely no science whatsoever to support evolution. All good science proves creation. Well, now that statement, I agree with you 100%, but our viewers are sitting here thinking, wait a minute, this is an absolutely proven fact, all of the well, evolution stuff. Evol evolution, first of all, there's no such, theory, no such thing as the theory of evolution. Yeah. Literally, if you had a million evolutionists in a room, you'd have a million different theories. They would all agree it's true, and no two would agree with it. It really happened. And the fact of the matter is, by the time it got through the room, the first guy would change his mind. Mm -hmm. So first of all, you have to realize that, that there is no such thing as the theory of evolution. There are many. Secondly, they've never been proven. That, that's an absurdity. As a matter of fact, most evolutionists would have to agree if you push them hard enough. It's not really been proven. What it is, it's a philosophical construct. That evolution is not accepted scientifically, it's accepted philosophically. But it is spoken often that it's a proven fact that They're, this has happened. Because they have the floor. They've got the pulpit, so yeah. to speak. They have the bully pulpit. And what they well, do is they simply, because this is what they want to believe, they then promote yeah. it to others because they want to have company. Well, I think that this is a point that really needs to be emphasized as we start into all of this, that we are countering the theory or the theories of evolution, but it is not proven fact. Matter of fact, the facts prove opposite. Absolutely. And after 16 months, I came to the conclusion there's not one law of science, there's not one natural process, and only some of the physical evidence that could be used to support evolution, whereas every natural law, every natural process, and all the physical evidence supports creation. Well, now, Grady, I'm really interested that when you became a Christian, you immediately saw a conflict here. So it would this be accurate to say that if you truly embrace evolution, is it an anti-God concept? or uh, it, Why did you pure, all of a sudden see this conflict? Well, see, pure, pure evolution is absolutely atheistic. Now, there are those people who would call themselves deists. There are those that are theistic evolutionists and so forth. There's different gradations. Mm -hmm. However, if you truly believe 100% evolution, you cannot be a Christian, period, because true evolution is atheistic. Hodges at Princeton, back over 100 years ago, said that evolution is atheism. That was his simple blanket statement after reading Darwin and analyzing things. And that's exactly correct, because true, pure evolution says there is no God, period. That everything must be naturalistic, mechanistic. There can be no outside creator, designer, God, no outside intelligence of any kind whatsoever. So those people who are Christians and believe that evolution has occurred in the past over millions and billions of years, we, we lump them as theistic evolutionists, that God used evolution. But this is not an acceptable position. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely wrong, and you can prove it being yep, wrong. I believe so. 
And that's just it. My point is that all you need is six things to prove that any old earth view is inconsistent with Christianity. Because if you believe in any old earth view, you're destroying the cross. Mm-hmm. You see, if you believe in any old earth view whatsoever, you're saying God's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, he's a liar, he doesn't always have a witness, he can't save a remnant, and death occurs before sin. If that's true, take the book of Romans and tear it out of the Bible. Without the doctrine of creation, there is no Christianity. Because you find this throughout the entire scripture. If you start not just with Genesis, but if you take a look at, for instance, John chapter 5 or Revelation 14, 6 and 7, it is creation, which is the foundation of Christianity. Without mm-hmm. it, there's no Christianity. God made them male and female. They didn't evolve. Also, you know, it says that every, pers- every species was supposed to bring forth after his kind. And evolution is based on all of these things evolving from simple to complex. And it just totally goes against the whole concept that Scripture teaches. So well, that's, I, I that's think it's it. totally incompatible. But think about it for just a moment as to why an old earth view destroys the power of the cross. Because if you do believe in millions and billions of years, the only reason to do that would be to believe that life and death have been going on for millions and billions of years. If that's true, death is common. And human sin didn't cause it. And so the death of one man on a cross is meaningless. I've never thought of it from that perspective, but that's very good. Whereas if you understand creation correctly, that God started everything perfect, put Adam and Eve there, gave them the right to mess things up, they did. Mm -hmm. And because of human sin, death came into the universe. Then and only then can you understand how the death of one sinless man on the cross can atone for the sins of the world. And so Mm -hmm. if you believe in an old earth, you're destroying the power of the cross, period. You may not realize it. I'm not saying that people do it intentionally. Most of them do it without thinking. Most of them do it because they've never been presented with the information that they would then think it through. Well, in my introduction, I was noticing out of my corner of my eye, you nodding your head when I said something about uh, surveys that they've done on pastors and stuff. So do you have any specifics, any of this data about what number of pastors believe in some type of evolution? I don't have the specifics on, on the numbers, but I absolutely concur with you that in my opinion and in my experience, over 50% of all Christians, including pastors, accept some form of theistic evolution. And the fact of the matter is we should be standing strong for an inerrant Bible. And even if you're only a theologian and you don't have the science, you ought to stand on the fact that God says 6,000 years ago, I created in six literal 24-hour days. And you have, for instance, Exodus 20, 8 through 11 to back you up. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got the science too. You know, and some of it is very, very simple, as I pointed out in, in The Waters Cleaved. Well, see, this is the reason that I've brought you on to my program, and I want to stress this, is because... Uh, I feel intimidated because I am not uh, an intellectual. I'm not trying to put myself down, but I I only went to one semester of college and dropped out. And I have studied millions of hours, I don't know, in the Word, and I feel very confident speaking on scriptural things. But when you start talking about evolution, I know that one of the criticisms is going to come against me is you need to stick with the Bible. You have no business teaching these other things. But yet I believe that the Bible disproves evolution just on the scriptures. But ministers are just summarily dismissed because we don't have credentials. And I understand the intimidation, but we've got to speak out. If we don't, uh, then we're going to leave it to these unbelievers to establish what the norm is. Well, that's just it. When you wash down the word to where anybody can believe it, then it has no value. That's period. Mm-hmm. Uh, no doubt you'll appreciate the cover. Owner's yeah. Manual Unlimited <laughs> Warranty. Very good. 
And the fact of the matter is that we've got simple, simple science. Now, for instance, uh, we're sitting here in Colorado. The Colorado River goes eventually all the way into the Baja. Mm -hmm. There's only 4,500 years worth of mud at the mouth of the Colorado River. There's only 4,500 years worth of mud at the mouth of the Mississippi, the Amazon, the Congo, the Indus, the Ganges, and so forth, showing that the earth has only been eroding since the time of Noah's flood. Now, that is so simple, a six-year-old child could know it mm -hmm. and be able to use that as a simplistic argument for a young earth. You don't have to understand the heavy-duty stuff. You don't have to understand the decay of the Earth's magnetic field or barred spiral galaxies, though they're there. But we do have near 300 arguments now, scientifically. And you have to remember that evolutionists do not have one single scientific proof that it's old. And, of course, they would say they do, and it's an established fact, but I agree with you that it's all supposition. Well, they don't have one fact. What they have is groupthink. And they have five major arguments that they use to try to promote the idea of millions and billions of years. But I even have uh, quotations on my website where you'll actually see uh, the biologist, microbiologist, can look at the complexity of human life and realize it's impossible. The irreducibly complex systems that are involved, the chemical chains of events that have to mm -hmm. occur, the complexity of the DNA molecule, and they know evolution is not true. But they'll say, I want to believe, I want to believe evolution is true. And they say, but the geologist has proven that it's old, so it's okay. I think that there's, there's a <laughs> point that you've made. People want to believe in evolution because basically it takes their accountability to a creator away. And it enables them to live like a dog because they're just an evolved animal. Well, that's just it. They're a thinking animal according to evolutionists. And I have often used exactly what you're talking about. Evolution is a religion. It is not yep. science. And it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does creation. <laughs> and, and that is true because it's contradictory to the evidence. It is. But the fact of the matter is why do they want to believe it? Because it's the only way in which they can intellectually justify that they can lead a sinless life without Jesus Christ. That's right. I believe that's true. What I call it is evolution is a religion of convenience. If it ain't convenient, it don't fit my religion. Yeah. And this is what justifies then the homosexual lifestyle, abortion euthanasia, racism, uh, pornography, all of the social ills that I know that you're deeply concerned about, all of them, evolution is the taproot. Yeah. The I'm tree trunk is secular humanism. The branches are merely the social issues. Yeah. And I believe that there's some people who you love God, you want to be accountable to God, but you have just drunk the Kool-Aid of this mantra that has been said that this is fact. And uh, so you may just be misinformed. That's the reason I've got Grady on and uh, we're going to get into some of these details. So let's get into your uh, teaching here on the waters cleaved. Uh, I saw this DVD and I was just astounded as you took these maps that basically removed the water and showed the ocean floor. And you've made some tremendous statements through that. Well, and of course, also studying the scripture. Because to, to start with Noah's flood is great. But you also have to look at how God pre-planned everything. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, verses day 1, 2, and 3, and you look at the Hebrew, it says not in the beginning but at. It's specific. It's not nebulous. God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was at the time of its creation, and then many English translations say unformed or uh, formless and void. But the correct Hebrew rendering would be without form or formless or unformed, and a void is empty, blank, or unfilled. And so, and the earth was, at the time of its creation, 
unformed and unfilled, meaning that God, like a potter, is going to take six days to finish the forming and finish the filling. There's darkness, and there's water on the surface of this round ball, and the Holy Spirit is moving, but it's a Hebrew word for brooding, meaning mm-hmm. that like a chicken broods an egg. Yeah. He starts the rotation of the earth on day one, and he's energizing systems. And then on the last thing, on day one, God speaks light into existence because he doesn't need stars to do it. Mm-hmm. On day two, it talks about there's a firmament that God is going to make. Now, what happens there is that God actually makes what we'll call an eggshell. And he separates waters above and waters below. There's still water covering the the surface. But on day three, you'll notice that he causes the dry land to rise up out of the water, and he gathers the seas. And the word is seas. Mm-hmm. Seas are shallow. Seas are up to a mile deep. But he causes the water to be gathered into one place, and the dry land appears. Now, if you had looked at the earth from a satellite at the time of creation, you would have seen 40% of the earth's surface dry land, with a few islands, but the land would have been in one place. The concept of Pangea, as evolutionists would call it, is biblical. Mm-hmm. And 60% of the surface would be water. That's the shallow seas. And so what you'd have is a sea in the Pacific, a sea in the Indian Sea, and no Atlantic because the land mass is fitting together. Well, you know, I've heard this concept of Pangea. But it's a biblical concept. It doesn't belong to the evolutionists. It came from the evolutionists, and so I kind of dismissed it along with everything else. But But this is how evolutionists take a truth and then corrupt it. Mm -hmm. And so the concept of Pangea is a biblical Christian concept. And the separation of Pangea did occur. We'll talk about that. But evolutionists want you to think it's 120 to 200 million years, and I say it's one. And then I give you the physical evidence to prove Mm -hmm. it. But Happened the reason during I, the flood. But exactly. And, and, and why I'm mentioning Genesis day 1, 2, 3 is because you have to understand that God in his total omniscience, knowing ahead of time what he's going to need to have happen later and so forth. On day 3, when that dry land comes out and so forth, remember it talks about the separation of waters above and below. Mm-hmm. And so in this firmament, God is making the, what we think of as the earth's crust. But it's more like an eggshell. There is extra moisture in the atmosphere, not a lot more to, than today, but some, 5, 10, maybe 15%. There's shallow seas one mile deep in the Indian and the Pacific, no Atlantic, the concept of Pangea. But 10 miles down, underneath that eggshell, there's a layer of water a mile deep. In 1909, we actually found the physical evidence of that existence. Today, we now know that there's still large pockets of water that are down there that never came up the first time. Today we now know that there's at least five to six times more water in the crust than is on the crust. This really is the water planet. Mm -hmm. But when you go down 10 miles, the earth gets warmer at 90 degrees per mile as you go down initially. So that water is at 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Now, simplistically, it's super hot water. It's actually called super critical water, but it's simply hot water above 212 that's liquid. Now, how does that happen? I thought it would turn to steam. Just but like a pressure cooker. Pressure. But you have a pressure cooker. Okay. You're familiar with those. Mm-hmm. And you know that if you keep enough pressure on water, you can get water that's liquid up to, say, 280 in a kitchen and so forth. Okay. And some people will understand about a pressure cooker that didn't hold on. Yeah. And it destroys the kitchen. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's because liquid steam, and that's what this is, liquid steam is perhaps the second most powerful force in nature behind atomic energy. I mean, we launch, we launch planes on a U.S. aircraft carrier to 200 miles an hour in 2.7 seconds based on the power of liquid steam. Hmm. And so this is a tremendously powerful thing. It's what causes volcanic eruptions. Hot rock doesn't explode. It's the hot water that explodes. And so God put it down there in his foreknowledge, knowing he'd need it 1,656 years later. Mm-hmm. And when he says it's time for the, for the flood, if you go to Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, what I call the convenient star verse of the Bible, Genesis 7, 11, uh-huh. <laughs> when it says that the fountains of the great deep yeah. or the springs of waters burst forth or broke open, the actual Hebrew word that is used there is to cleave. Now, I'm a full-time missionary. I'm working in 20 languages on five continents. And I am not concerned about a translation by word, because you know as well as I do in your foreign work. There's no such thing as a, a perfect translation. You always lose something in the translation. And so what I'm concerned about is an interpretation by concept. And the concept there is, the Hebrew word is cleave. Now, to cleave means to come into a knife edge. Uh, meat cleaver is a big mm-hmm. meat knife, right? Mm-hmm. And so what it says is the water's knifed through from below at the time of the flood. And, of course, when you see the maps that we have showing the earth with no water, and these are highly detailed maps of the earth's surface without water. We've extracted it all. You can see the actual proof of where the water's knifed through from below. You can see how the continents were separated. You can see that they would float rapidly because they're on a layer of water, just as a boat pushing away from a dock is very easy. A child can push a boat away from a dock. So since the continents, although they're in one piece to start with, when they're knifed through from below, break the continents up into smaller pieces, they're big boats. We call them continents, but they're just big boats. Mm -hmm. And because they're on a layer of water, they can slip slide away very, very quickly. And as the water comes up, the continents are moving apart. But as the waters come up, just like a boat with a hole in it, the water goes up, the boat goes down. And so the continents are sliding apart rapidly. This only takes one year. But they're also settling because as the water's coming out from underneath, they're trading places. So the water comes out, is now on top, the land sinks down, locks in. The King James Bible has a very interesting term. It says that the surface of the earth is supported on pillars and sockets. That's the King James mm-hmm. Version. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, when, the, when this eggshell breaks apart and then is sinking because the water's coming out from underneath, it's not going to be two flat surfaces meeting each other and squeezing it all out. Instead, it's going to be like knuckles, if you, if you allow me. So in between these two knuckles will be the, that's a socket. This knuckle is a pillar. And so it comes in and locks in this way, but that leaves space in here where water is trapped, and we've still found that. we found a sea of water underneath the Gobi Desert, mm-hmm. but it's miles down. You know, there's enough water below the Gobi if you could dig that far down, but we can't. But if you could dig that far down, you can make the Gobi Desert, you know, a garden. Wow. And so all of these processes are going on, and we have the physical evidence that that's absolutely true. And once the earth is flooded, if you take a look at Psalm 104, you have the chronology of the flood, verses 5 through 9. The earth is flooded, the water stands above the mountains, but these are shallow mountains. It's not like the mountains around here. Scientifically, a mountain only has to be a 1,000 feet or more of elevational difference in a local area. So the mountains before the flood were one, two, three, four, five thousand 5,000 feet high, but capable of being covered with one mile of water. 
But that water erodes those mountains that existed from creation of the flood and makes the wet mud layers that are redeposited, the sedimentary rock layers you see around here. Mm-hmm. Then it says in Psalm 104, verse 7, the waters go away. Verse 8, the mountains rose up, the valleys sank down. Verse 9, God promises he'll never flood the earth again. There's a judgment by fire in Second Peter, but there won't be another flood. Mm-hmm. And the mountains that you see around here are the mountains that rose up, verse 8, after the flood. And we see now this all these is things. verse 8 of what? Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Verses 5 through 9. Psalm 104 is one of the eight creation psalms. Mm-hmm. And Psalm 104 is a summary psalm because the first four verses summarize the creation week of Genesis chapter 1. Verses 5 through 9 give you the chronology of the flood with a specific detail. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And so that's a tremendous vindication. Okay, so you're saying that after Noah's flood, there was a lot of volcanic activity that created the massive mountains we have today? Well, the mountains around here are uplifted. That's verse 8. These are uplifted sedimentary layers. But there's a tremendous amount of volcanism as well. When the earth cracks open at the time, allowing the water's cleaving, many people don't realize this, but volcanoes explode because of hot water. And they're not just hot rock. 20 to 70% of the material coming out of a volcano is hot water. That's what caused Mount St. Helens to erupt, mm-hmm. Mount Tambora, Krakatoa, Pinatubo. I mean, all these eruptions you might be familiar with of, of recent time or beyond. Let me just say that on your uh, video on the waters cleaved, you have those things documented, the yes, years and the relative strength of them, and it yep. is really a powerful presentation. Well, thank you. Um, but, but what happens at the time of the flood, there's not been earthquake and volcanic activity. But when, once you have an earthquake, once you have a land cracking open, then you have opportunity for hot rock and hot water to come up from below. So initially it's trapped. But when the earth breaks open, the water's knife through from below. There are volcanoes in, in Israel, as you know. And the whole, whole Jordan Valley is one volcanic rift. You know, when you're standing on top of the Mount of Beatitudes, you can see Mount Hatim, which is just an extinct volcano to the west. Or if you go up on the Golan Heights, uh, going towards the Syrian border and so forth, you can see several volcanoes. You can see it from Google Earth. I mean, you, all you got to do is look. And that whole area is very volcanic, and the whole you know, Caesarea Philippi and so forth is where the crack begins. And it goes right down the Jordan River goes down what is now the Red Sea. Now, that wasn't the Jordan River, and it wasn't the Red mm-hmm. Sea before the flood, but it is now. Mm-hmm. And that crack continues out underneath the ocean into the Indian Ocean and goes around the world, breaks off three continents from the others. They slip slide very quickly, and they are then covered by water, covered with wet mud layers. The flood ends. Those layers erode. Others are lifted, folded. And it, you do have tremendous amount of volcanic activity. And that causes an ice age immediately after the flood as well. And this is also mentioned in the Bible. And people just Job, skip over that, but the Bible is very accurate, scientific. Exactly. That's why I mentioned day one, day two, day three, yeah. because it talks about how God creates the earth. Then he creates mm-hmm. this layer with waters above and below, causes the dry land to come out, the separation of the waters, and Pangea is a biblical concept. Mm-hmm. And then 1,656 years later, that water is going to come up from below. And that's what's going to cause that one supercontinent to be broken up into smaller ones, allow them to move rapidly in only one year. Mm-hmm. Remember, the earth is only covered with water for 300 days. If you just simply take a look at the scriptures and simply read chapter 7, chapter 8, mm-hmm. 
there in the ark, a total of 377 days, 370 from the day the waters start to come out. But the water only covers the earth for 300. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've added all that up. Well, that's just it. So you've got your waters above and then down below the, the waters below, meaning underneath, and then a shallow seas on the surface. I live in Florida, in Orlando, but here's the Mississippi River, and at the mouth of the Mississippi, there's only 4,500 years worth of mud. Notice that the Gulf of Mexico is a big empty hole in the ground. This is not feet, that's meters there, so this is 3.8 kilometers down, a little over two miles. So you've got a, a big empty hole in the ground with a flat surf, sand surface at the bottom, and only 4,500 years worth of mud. Now, if the Mississippi were millions of years old, then the entire Gulf of Mexico would be filled in. I mean, this is one of the simplest and easiest ways yeah. to see the Earth is young, and evolution are a lion, and you've also they say made, it's old. you've also made that point that every major river in the world is every the major exact in the world. same thing. And we can see that. Now, uh, I do missionary work in Brazil every year, and here's Brazil. Now, this is northern Brazil. Here's the Amazon River. Mm-hmm. There's only 4,500 years worth of mud at the mouth of the Amazon. And so that would be right in right here. here. And there's a flat sand bottom right up against the continent on both sides. Now, evolutionists talk about Pangaea. Everybody in school has seen that the continents do sort of kind of look like they'd fit together. But you have to ask yourself a question. If you want to know how well they did or did not fit together, would you look at where sea level is today, where they look sort of kind of like, particularly South America and Africa. I mean, everybody can see that. Mm -hmm. But would you want to look there, or would you want to take a look at the edge of the continent? Well, you don't want to look at where sea level is. You want to take a look at the edge of the continent. That's the edge of the continental shelf. Now, today, the continental shelves are underwater. But at one time, they were dry land. And when you take a look at the entire Atlantic here, you'll notice, for instance, and I'll go back for just a second. If you take a look at the Gulf of Mexico, here's a big, wide continental shelf on the west coast of Florida. Mm -hmm. It's over 100 miles wide. If you go down to South America, to Argentina, you have a continental shelf that's 200 miles wide off of Argentina, and you'll notice that at the edge of the continental shelf, it's not a sawtooth like it is at sea level. Right. It's a nice, smooth V. And if you take a look at the Brazil area, you have an in, out, in, out that fits the in, out, in, out in Africa, and this nice, smooth V here. There's only 4,500 years worth of mud at the mouth of the Congo River. And if you could see this in an actual round globe, because on a flat surface, there's distortion of the top and bottom, but mm-hmm. if you could see this in a round globe, you would actually see that the continental shelf of Greenland perfectly, and I mean perfectly, fits the continental shelf of Norway. It's like two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And you'll see this crack going up the middle here. Now, this is where you have the eruption of hot rock and hot water. The water's cleaving from below. You see it fits the general shape of the continents. You can see it clearly goes like this, which is what you'd expect if something knifes through from below. You'd Uh expect it to go like that. And you'll see here stretch marks. Now, stretch marks only happen when you have something happen fast, like pregnancy, nine months. Yeah, I'm familiar with those. Any <laughs> husband's seen them, I think, if <laughs> they've right. had children. But we have these stretch marks showing that this all happened fast. And then if we take a look at the... Now, Indian, what is, excuse me, what sure. does the stretch mark mean in geological terms? How does that Again, mean rapid that Again, rapid moving. Now, evolutionists would want you to believe that this occurred slowly and gradually. But if that were true, just think with me for a second. If the continents fit together, moved apart as they claim, at an inch and a half, two inches per year for 120, 200 million years, it depends on the evolutionists you ask, then think about this. Mud would wash in from the sides because rain would fall on the continents. Mm -hmm. Mud would wash in from the sides, from both sides, and you'd have a thick layer of mud going across there. 
you wouldn't even see the stretch marks because there'd be mud on top. All right. And but so the my... sheer fact we can see them, and we have what are called abyssal planes, flat sand bottoms right up against the side of the continents, proves that that, that mud never came into the Atlantic in the first place. Okay, so my question is how do the evolutionists deal with this? They refuse to think about it. They certainly censure it from anybody else knowing about it. Even if they know about it, they don't want anybody else to know about it. And if they do know about it, then they make up fairy tales for adults when they're confronted. For instance, think with me for a second. When this material comes out from the middle, mm -hmm. then the oldest material should be on the edge near the continents because new material would be coming out of the middle, correct? Mm -hmm. But if you, if you do potassium argon dates on these things, and, and I will tell you, potassium argon is not reliable, but I'm simply saying the evolutionists have done this. We've taken uh -huh. cores. And what you find out is the oldest material is in the middle and the youngest is at the, at the edge. That's contradictory to their position, which again shows there's a problem. And how do they deal with this problem? They don't. They ignore it. They have no way of doing it. So they don't have a leg to stand on with mm -hmm. this stuff at all. And this shows that it all happened very quickly in only one year, as the Bible says. And when you take a look at the Indian Ocean here, here again we have a crack. But notice if you follow the crack back here. Now, you'll notice there's a split. If we take a look here, you can see there's a split in the Indian Ocean uh -huh. that comes to the Atlantic. But if you go to the Indian Ocean, you have a split going east and west. But if you follow that crack north here, it's just one crack goes to about the equator, turns about 45 degrees northwest, goes towards Saudi Arabia, then it turns, comes right straight down the middle of the Gulf of Aden, and you can see the crack is getting smaller. But it then turns and goes right straight at the bottom of the Red Sea from the south to the north end, getting smaller. But here at the north end at Elat in Israel, that crack turns and goes right straight up to the Jordan River Valley. It goes right straight through the Dead Sea, right straight up the Jordan, right straight through the Sea of Galilee, mm -hmm. right straight up the River Jordan, and starts here at Caesarea Philippi. So is that the end of this crack? So that's where it begins. So, and that's you, not the end, that's the beginning. And so you can say that because of the way it widens out as it goes along? First of all, you can see it starts very, very small, very tight. And of course, initially, what's going to happen? You have tremendous pressure at that point, and a crack starts to form. And it forms what is going south there, the Jordan River Valley, today. Mm -hmm. Turns, forms what is today, the bottom of the Red Sea. And then comes out here, at that point, it is now underwater. Remember, there's one mile of water there now. Mm-hmm. And then that crack comes out, goes here, and it actually goes all the way around the world. We'll take a look at it in the Pacific, too, but it's 40,000 miles long. Wow. We can see so many things with this. Now, this is a map of the entire world showing the entire extent. You can see it starts at Caesarea Philippi, comes down the Jordan, down the Red Sea, out the Gulf of Aden, splits here in the Indian Ocean, going around the Pacific there. There's another crack that comes here up the Atlantic, and you asked about where does it end. Well, there's the end right there when it hits northern Russia. It goes sort of past the North Pole. And as I like to say euphemistically, it runs out of steam when it hits northern Russia. <laughs> but all these things are clearly visible. If now, again, the distortion of a flat map, is this the same point as over here? Well, what this is, see, it comes up here, curves past the North Pole, because the North Pole is not on here. goes up, curves past the North Pole, and ends there. Okay. That is the end of it right there. All right. And That's of course, amazing. the significance of starting at Caesarea Philippi is beyond belief. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, this is prior to the nation of Israel and stuff, but yet everything is established in the heart of God. Well, and, and remember, this is where Jesus takes his disciples, mm -hmm. walks them to Caesarea Philippi, 
says to them, who do men say the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say you're this and some say you're that. And he says, yeah, well, that's what they say. And then he asks one of the two most important questions in the entire New Testament. Yeah, that's what they say, but who do you say Mm -hmm. that I am? Mm -hmm. And he's asking that at the very spot where the crack starts and breaks off three continents. It's the very spot where the Jordan River starts. It's clear living water coming right out of a rock. You've been there. That's amazing. Yeah, I've been there. I've seen it. And, And so this is not coincidence. Jesus knew exactly where he was. And, of course, as I say, he was there before that crack was. That's right. But the fact of the matter is that this has tremendous biblical significance. And all of this, uh, you were talking about the power of these volcanoes. Uh, uh, I don't want to get you out of sequence on this, but all of this volcano releasing that steam and all of this stuff into the atmosphere, uh, this would account for what is uh, often said by the evolutionist as the Ice Age, which is supposed to be long, Exactly. Evolutionists talk about multiple Ice Ages. They believe in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. The fact is that there was only one ice age. It occurred after the flood of Noah. It was caused by the events that initiated the flood of Noah. Now, so it's, it's not, actually a result of it's, the flood. It's, it's not instantaneous. It's a result of, because what happens is you have this tremendous amount of hot water coming to the surface, mixing with what are already subtropical seas. Remember, the earth is a subtropical from pole to pole prior to the flood. Mm-hmm. And we have the physical evidence to prove that, too. For instance, in Greenland in 1883, we found fossilized breadfruit trees. Wow. Well, breadfruit trees don't grow in freezing conditions, you know. And recently, we found fossil insects and fossil dinosaurs within 200 miles of the South Pole. Mm. So clearly, it was a lot was... warmer in the past there. Uh-huh. And so what happens is you have this hot water coming out, mixing with what's already there. When you have hot water, you know as well as I do, you have tremendous amounts of evaporation. The hotter the water, the more water evaporates. Mm -hmm. So it's evaporating very quickly. But you have thousands of volcanoes all going off at the same time. That causes ash and other aerosols to go into the atmosphere and block out sunlight, which causes the atmosphere to cool rapidly. Now, these are the perfect conditions to build polar ice caps because when you have a lot of moisture being evaporated into cold air, you have the perfect conditions for ice-snow formation, and the polar ice caps start to form as a result of being in the initial events of the flood. And then, you know, we weren't there. This is our best estimate. Our best estimate is that the ice age starts initially, but again, it is nothing to be worried about initially but it actually increases in intensity for probably about 500 years. This would be past the time of the man Job. And the first mention of ice and snow in the Bible is in the book of Job. And then because the volcanoes settle down, the ash comes down by precipitation or gravity and so forth, the sunlight starts to come back in, the polar ice caps melt back to roughly where they are today. And so the whole thing lasts perhaps around 700 years. Now, this would be during the time of uh, Abraham, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. Abraham's a young man at the time that Job's alive. Uh-huh. So, you know, the book of Job is written basically 2000 B.C. Abraham would have been a young man at the time. And, uh, of course, Job's life. Uh, and so, yes, this is, you know, from a chronological standpoint when it's occurring. Now, here's a total layman asking a dumb question. But most people kind of consider that the Ice Age was like worldwide. Well, and uh, unfortunately, as I tell people, never get your education from government-run television, National Geographic, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, 
Hollywood. <laughs> you know, the, the animated movies and the, the other movies that Hollywood has made in recent years about ice ages and catastrophes of that sort make you think the earth becomes a big snowball. But that's simply not true. Well, it couldn't be if Abraham and the things uh, recorded in Scripture, you know, continued on. That right. wasn't during an ice age where they were. Well, let's take a look real quick. Uh, this is a graphic just to show, again, how the hot water coming out from below would allow the continents to move rapidly. Mm-hmm. Now, Gaios in the Pacific prove, again, that the ocean floor sank rapidly one mile at the time of the flood. But here's a chart showing some relatively sized volcanoes of the past. And I do a whole presentation on Mount St. Helens. It produced one cubic kilometer of ash. But if you take a look at Krakatoa, the sound heard around the world in 1883, it produced 18 cubic kilometers. 18 now, you times know, I've never heard any Helens. of these things. Probably many of our viewers haven't. But I guess all of this is documented. Oh, yes, sir. Okay. Now, Krakatoa is in Indonesia. The explosion was so violent it was heard in downtown London, England. Wow, and this is that's 1883. What, that's 1883, and that's why it's called the sound heard around the world. However, Tambora is also in Indonesia. Again, these are right on the equator. In 1815, it produced 80 cubic kilometers of ash and ejecta. Look it up. 1816, Europe had the year without summer. It snowed in all 12 months of the year in Europe in 1816 because this one volcano cooled the earth so rapidly that in one year... We have snow in all 12 months in Europe. Now, when you say Europe, what part are you talking about specifically? I'm talking about the entire European continent. So that would have been London, Berlin, any of those places? Yes. Wow. And, well, it can get much bigger and much worse than that. Well, I've been there in the summer, and I guarantee you, (laughs) for it to snow all 12 months of the year would definitely be a different climate than we have now. Well, Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines, again, near the equator, erupted in 1991, it dropped the Earth's temperature, atmospheric temperature, 1.3 degrees in one year. Again, this just shows you the power of volcanoes to cool the Earth. Now imagine what happens if you have thousands of volcanoes all going up at the same time. You're going to get an ice age. And we know, for instance, uh, the super volcanoes that occurred at Yellowstone and other eruptions were even much larger than this. And, of course, this is what's happening at the time of the flood. We have super volcanoes erupting, thousands of other volcanoes erupting. So what would you say at the time of the flood, how many volcanoes? We don't even Hundreds? know. Well, there's, there's in the area of 30,000, 40,000 on Earth today. The vast majority of them are older. Some are new, of course. But this map, you've talked about the ice age that occurred after the flood. Now, this map, regardless of whether you're a creationist or evolutionist, makes no difference. This map shows the maximum extent of polar ice at any time in the northern hemisphere in the past, period. And the southern hemisphere, it's irrelevant because there's nobody down there at the end of the flood, you know. All right, so Grady, the, is this accepted? I mean, would even the evolutionists accept that this is the maximum extent? Yes, and I, I, now I've been in Russia many more times than you have, but I have been between St. Petersburg and Moscow where the ice stopped. Mm-hmm. Ter- terminal moraines, just like in Ohio, the terminal moraines. Think about it. This map shows you the maximum extent of polar ice at any time in the past, regardless of whether you believe in creation or evolution, right? Mm-hmm. And you will notice the ice only gets as far south as the Canadian-U.S. border, except for the area right around the Great Lakes, basically, in New England. It covers sea ice, Greenland, Iceland, of course. It covers Ireland, Scotland, England. It covers Scandinavia, smaller portions of northern Russia. But again, the ice never got as far south as Berlin. Mm-hmm. The ice never got as far south as Moscow. 
And, of course, this map also shows us how the people came from the Tower of Babel experience and got to North and South America. They simply walked. But the fact of the matter is that the Ice Age is not nearly as catastrophic as people have been taught or influenced by things like Hollywood-made movies. It simply isn't true. So if you accept that idea, well, then that uh, lends itself towards evolution or something because human life couldn't have existed. Over here is Israel, and it's way far south. Exactly. You see, again, Job is written 350 years after the flood. It's the first mention of ice and snow in the Bible. That's in the middle of the Ice Age because, again, it's about 700 years, so Job's right in the middle. But you'll notice they never even saw the ice and snow for the first few generations. And how did, how did the animals and the people coming out of the ark survive? Well, they're over here. They're nowhere near the ice. Yeah, up here would be Mount Ararat, somewhere in the over here. Okay, this is Turkey. So I was close. Yep, uh, only about a thousand miles off. No, no, you're only a couple hundred. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that they then migrate to what becomes Babel, Babylon in mm-hmm. that area, mm-hmm. Tower of Babel, for 150 years. Now the animals have already started to migrate. They come out of the ark, and the wild animals migrate immediately. The domestic animals primarily stay with the people, but. Immediately, the wild animals will start to migrate. They get a 150-year head start on the people. So they're already going all the way around the world. 150 years later, the people start to migrate. Now, if I can just show you something here, because you've got to be able as a Christian to answer these questions. You know, how did people, so if the Bible's right, how did they get from the Tower of Babel to North and South America to become the Incas? Or how did they get to be the Aborigines in Australia? Well, during the Ice Age, you're sucking tremendous amounts of water out of the oceans into the polar ice caps. You you know, there's so much ice in Antarctica, it literally pushes the entire continent down. That's how much ice is there. And so what happens is that the ocean level drops two to 300 feet. Remember the continental shelves that were dry at creation? Well, during the flood, everything's covered. But look right here, for instance. And now I'm going to go back to this... Do you see these little lines in the continental shelf between Borneo and Malaysia in here? Mm-hmm. Right here you're talking about? Yeah, these little little lines right there. Okay. And there's a few right here, too. You can see right there. Uh-huh. Right there. Those are river canyons. Now, you can't cut a river canyon underwater. Makes that, sense. That shows that during the Ice Age, which lasted about 700 years, that as the water level goes down, wet mud layers are exposed. They're going to erode quickly, initially and then dry out into harder rock as they're cut. But this shows that river canyons are being cut down here during the Ice Age, but you've got a land bridge from Southeast Asia to Australia. And then if we go over here, look at the land bridge that exists from Siberia to Alaska. is mm-hmm. wider than the state of Alaska. Yeah. And then if you take a look at the map with the glaciation, you notice that that area, is, there's no glaciers during the Ice Age. That people can walk here and walk down into North America, walk down into South America, because there are areas where the ice doesn't exist there. And so you have these great land bridges. Now, when the ice melts back to where it is today, the end of the Ice Age, these continental shelves get re-inundated. And when they get re-inundated, the people are then isolated. Well, let me ask you this. I go to the Grand Canyon, and I love going in the mountains. We four-wheel, and we go to these national parks, and they'll say that, 150 million years ago or 500 million years ago, this strata of rock. And and it's just presented as fact. And they say that this proves evolution. And yet the flood 
is how all of this stuff was put down. I'd like That's you right. to address that. Well, you have to remember, first of all, when the evolutionists talk about millions and billions of years, it is imaginary. They made it up in their own imagination. There. First of all, they were not there. <laughs> they cannot document it. That's true. Scientifically, you're dealing with a historical event that cannot be scientifically proven. The scientific method cannot be used to do things like that because it's outside of the scope of science, which deals with here and now. Secondly, of course, you've got people who, again, uh, and as I say, the church has done a lousy job of doing this, haven't shown the science behind this, such as we were talking about previously. You know, But let's take a look at what's really in the ground versus what's in the textbooks, because to me, this is critical. Again, growing up in the paleontology laboratories at Berkeley, fossils and, and the various sedimentary layers in which you find the fossils. Mm -hmm. The first thing you have to remember is this. On the Earth's land surface, 75 to 80% is covered with dried out mud layers containing trillions of dead plants and animals that all drowned. Now that ought to tell you that it's a worldwide flood mm -hmm. right there, that this is not slow and gradual accumulation. As a matter of fact, we now know that fossilization is rapid, and you, to get a fossil, would have to have it buried rapidly. It can't be slowly or it would decay. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, though, of the 75 to 80% of the entire Earth's land surface that is covered with dried-out mud layers, that's sedimentary rock, because sedimentary rock is just dried-out mud, mm -hmm. 80 to 85% of that does not even have three layers in the order shown in the textbooks. Oh, so, there's, so their evolutionary model is not consistent. consistent with what's in the ground. You say they show the geological time scale or the geological time column in the textbook and then teach you that that's the way it is in the ground. But that's not true. That is a reconstruction by taking a layer in Africa and a layer in Asia and a layer in North America and putting them in the order they want them. No, really. So this whole thing so about Cambrian and I forget. Well, th those are names. Yeah, but I mean all of these names ascribed to this is stuff that you can't see consistent. Absolutely not consistent. Absolutely not consistent at all. Again, 80 to 85% doesn't even have three layers in the order shown in the textbook. What we find are layers upside down, out of order, missing, or interlaced, where it goes older, younger, older, younger, older, younger, according to the evolutionary teaching. Now, do they explain this, or do they, again, just ignore this? They ignore it. They try to hide it. Here's a picture of the Rocky Mountains, and, and here we see layers in the ground. I mean, these are fairly mm -hmm. easy to see layers. Sure. Now, first of all, if you take a oops, beg your pardon, if you take a close look at this, you will notice that if evolution was true, you'd expect these layers to be nice and flat. Because when water lays down layers, water seeks its own level. Water lays down mm -hmm. flat. Mm -hmm. But first of all, you notice that actually you see undulations. Uh -huh. That these are actually wave-like things. Also, notice the alluvial material. That's the that's the erosion material here at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all. If those mountains are supposed to three three hundred million years old or whatever, according to whichever evolution you talk to, where is the erosion material? Because this is not enough. This only supports a few thousand years. So they've got a big problem. But then if you say, well, it washed off into the rivers, such as the Colorado. Well, how come there's only forty five hundred years worth of mud at the mouth of the Colorado then? You see, mm -hmm. the physical evidence doesn't support the story. Now let's take a look. This comes from Montana. Now here you see sedimentary layers laid down flat by water, but they're standing basically upright, and you'll notice the curving, and you'll notice they're not broken. 
always, always, always look in the road cuts. It's free research. You've already yeah. paid for it. <laughs> Stop and look. Slow down and look. You see layers on the side of the road. Often they're flat. Often they look nice and planar, you know, and so forth. But if you just keep looking, you'll see undulations. You'll see sometimes they'll turn and meet another at a 90-degree angle. You'll see layers are standing upright. Now, remember, these were, these were laid down flat this way. But today, you know, instead of being this way, they're now this way or folded. But you can't bend rock. So what does this mean to see so these in the This in means the that these are, are the layers of sedimentary rock, mud laid down by the flow of Noah, then folded by tectonic forces the movement of continents and so forth, after the flood, while they're still wet, and then only after they have been folded, they dry out into hard rock. Now, this is what I was talking about with things like rapid formations of things like the Grand Canyon after the flood. Uh, we see this kind of rapid formation all over the world, these folded layers. And it shows you that everything was deposited very quickly. Now, at Colorado State University, there's a great sedimentation laboratory there. Now, this comes from a secular university. Colorado State is certainly a secular university, correct? Mm -hmm. But experimentations done there in their great sedimentation laboratory have proven all layers form at the same time and merely extend in the direction of water flow. So what we're saying is this. If you have moving water, all the layers, the bottom layer and the top layer, form at the same time, but extend as the water flows in that direction. All layers form at the same time. That proves the layer on the bottom is the same age as the layer on the top. Now, if that is accurate and if that's proven, that disproves evolution. It disproves it? evolution. It shows that what we have are fossils in the ground, yes, dead animals, dead plants from the flow of Noah, buried in wet mud layers. But these layers are often out of order, upside down, backwards. But these layers all formed at one time. Now, I want to get down to the Grand Canyon of northern Arizona. This is Arizona. This is called the Wave. Yes, I've, I've not been there, but I've seen it. And here you see a tremendous, uh, this is not even the best picture I've got of it, but this is just a tremendous area where you see basically every kind of sedimentation you can in one deposit. You have folding, you have interlacing, you have shearing, you have cross-hatching. Basically, every kind of sedimentation all in one spot, showing that it all happened very, very quickly. Now, uh, this is an area in New Mexico. Again, you notice here just dozens and dozens of layers that were laid down flat, folded, but then after they were folded, they were sheared off at the top, and another layer folded, or deposit, excuse me, on top, going in another direction. Now, what caused that? Again, this is the flood. This is where currents in the water are moving in different directions. This is as the waters rise and come down because you've got 300 days of, 150 days of waters rising, 150 days of it going down. Mm -hmm. You have tidal tsunamis, which after some layers have been deposited and start to fold, then have been sheared off by a, a tidal tsunami. These are all called turbidite deposits. That mean they're all deposited underwater. And uh, let's take a look at the Grand Canyon. Notice right here, now, here in the Grand Canyon, this is a close-up of the red wall limestone and the Cambrian Muav layers down here. Notice that they are interlaced. That is to say that they are mixed. You've got one, then another, then another, going mm -hmm. back and forth, showing that this was not the clean-cut thing that evolutionists say of different ages. 
but in fact was simply as these water currents are moving, depositing one layer of material that's dissolved someplace and another one here, and as the currents are moving back and forth, different layers are being deposited in this order, showing that, again, this is not consistent with what evolutionists claim. And at the Grand Canyon, we actually have layers that are missing. For instance, there's 140 to 160 million years missing out here, 10 million missing up there, according to evolutionary yeah. thinking. And so the fact of the matter is that sometimes we see very you know, smooth, flat lines, but there's 10 million years missing. Now, think with me for a second about this, because it's very important. When you look at these layers in the ground, such as the one you see right here, think with me. If the one was deposited and another one was deposited later, there had to be some period of time during which each layer was exposed before the next layer was deposited on top, right? Mm -hmm. Why are there no soil horizons between them? Now, what's a soil horizon? Where some of the rock had eroded into soil. Oh, okay. Why are there no V-shaped erosion marks? Because if these have been exposed, mm -hmm. rain falls on it, erodes a V-shaped erosion mark where water is cutting into the rock, that would be filled in by the next layer of mud coming in on mm -hmm. top, but it's not there. Why are there no animal holes? Why are there no root holes? It shows you that all of this was deposited at one time in a really big flood, that these layers were not exposed one after another after another. That's awesome. And how do the evolutionists deal with this? They don't. They simply try not to bring it up. I guess, really, the evolutionists are only able to gain the ground that they do because of people being uninformed. And well, that's so just it. The they, they, they rely on people being uninformed. They rely on being deceitful with their material, tricking people into believing that they're right. They censure science. They censure good science and only show you that which can be interpreted using their explanation. They tell a fairy tale for adults. And they deceive people into believing it's real, but when you really take a look at it in depth, you realize it's not. It's fictitious. So it goes back to that people anti-God, wanting to not have accountability, want to believe in evolution. They only look at the stuff that supports this. They only present the things that support their position, suppress or ignore the other information. They knowingly suppress the evidence. That's exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. There mm -hmm. are those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Yep. They know it's not true, but they suppress it anyway. They willingly are ignorant willingly. of this. <laughs> yes, and they willingly show. One thing I want you to address is they say that it took uh, at least millions or whatever years to erode for the Colorado River to erode the Grand Canyon. How do you answer this? What's the answer? Well, first of all, I, I think that we were looking at the sedimentary rock layers. And remember, sedimentary rock is just layers of dried out mud. Mm -hmm. Now, I would like to go to Mount St. Helens, 1980, and then show how this shows us how the Grand Canyon was formed quickly. Okay. Now, this is a 75-foot high cliff, and this is a fully adult young lady down here. That's not a child. She's a young lady. <laughs> but you see here three zones. There's one here, one here, one there. Mm -hmm. These zones are each approximately 25-foot deep. Now, if you were an evolutionist and you believe that material did come into existence at the rate of uh, one inch every thousand to ten thousand years by the erosion of prior rock material, uh, you would say this represents one million years of Earth history. The fact is that we have eyewitness documentation, photographic evidence to prove everything in the photograph, with the exception of the young lady, came into existence in less than three days. The bottom layer, 25 foot, occurred in nine hours on May the 18th of 1980. 
during the initial nine-hour first eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980, laid down 25-foot of ash wow, in so. nine hours. The second set of what are called highly striated, or many, many layers here, mm-hmm. uh, that was only in five hours. Wow. And the top layer formed in less than 24. There's three different events during the time of, of the eruptions in 1980 to 1982. But these three layers came into existence in less than 24-hour days. This yet, shows you that geological features come into existence in nature rapidly. But if an evolutionist was to walk on this a thousand years from now in the future, they would look at they this. They might and, well say this was a million years of Earth and history. And yet we have, we have explanation and proof that it we was can on prove it. It's very, very rapid. And 75-foot of material, nine hours, five hours, that's only 14. That's less than 24. So in less than 38 hours total, you have 75-foot of material. That's awesome. And again, I assume that the evolutionists don't uh, show this. They don't like to. <laughs> they don't talk about this <laughs> They don't much. talk about it. They hide it. Now, this is a photograph of the Grand Canyon of northern Arizona. It's something that you were very interested in and something very near and dear to all of us creation scientists. Now, here you see these beautiful colored layers. Now, the Grand Canyon at its deepest point is 1.2 miles deep. It is from an eighth of a mile to 18 miles wide. It's 277 miles long. It's a big empty hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. However, you'll notice in this photograph you can see barely right there is a little piece of the Colorado River, uh-huh. and right there you can see a little piece of the Colorado River. Now, of course, evolutionists want you to believe that all these layers came about slowly and gradually over 500 million supposed years of human history or time, Earth time, and they want you to believe that that river cut that canyon slowly and gradually. Now, there's a couple of problems with that, of course. Um, First of all, you take a look at the size of the river, you realize it couldn't do it. You know, just think about it for a second. But there's something else that's very, very important about it as well. Now I'm going to go back to Mount St. Helens for a moment to make an illustration. This is a canyon at Mount St. Helens. This is a uh, creation science colleague of mine. This canyon is 125 foot deep. It was cut in one day. Wow. Now, now how's that about water? Actually, mud flow. But that's a form of water flow, but, uh-huh. you know, it's a mud flow. That's when that uh, lake that was there, I guess? No, this was subsequent to that. Uh, okay. No, no. This is not during the initial okay, eruption. This so was actually flow. later. This was a subsequent eruption. But what I want to do is I want to go up on top to the edge there, and then I'm going to go way over that away. <laughs> okay? okay. And take a picture. Here in this photograph, that is the same canyon you just saw. Now, first of all, you notice the land here looks quite flat. Now, mm-hmm. I know there's mountains in the area because this is the southwest corner of Washington State. Uh, but you'll notice the land itself in this area looks rather flat, agreed? Mm-hmm. But you see how the canyons drop straight down, correct? Now, I'm going to take the camera from right here and just zoom, tell, just, you know, telephoto zoom lens into the same canyon right here. Okay. Now, you'll notice that in this photograph, you can see the same three layers I was just showing you with the young lady, correct? Uh-huh. And this is the canyon that was dug in one day, 125 foot deep, exposing these layers to make them so easy to see. We saw a canyon here, 140th the size of the Grand Canyon, form in a matter of weeks. So you multiply that times 40 and you could form the Grand Canyon in less than a year. Exactly. And the Grand Canyon was cut in less than a year. Now, let's go over to this canyon over here. It's called Engineer's Canyon. But again, you can see the exposed same layers here in the shadow. But you notice the canyon has two straight sidewalls and a flat bottom. And you see a little bit of water going down the middle there. Mm-hmm. Now, 
without me even have said anything about the mud flow cutting this particular portion here, you look at that photograph and you know that water didn't cut that canyon. Because if that water had cut that canyon slowly, gradually, you'd have a V-shaped canyon. This is a square-shaped canyon. Now, square-shaped canyons means that they're cut fast. And then you have to ask yourself this question. Is the canyon there because of the water, or is the water there because of the canyon? That's a good question. And it is very obvious. Once the mud flow cut the canyon very rapidly with straight sidewalls and then stopped because it's a very rapid event that stops, then there was a place for the water to go through. Mm -hmm. Take that analogy and go back to the Grand Canyon. Now, this is a satellite photograph taken from 23,000 miles above the surface of northern Arizona. This is a false color photograph. So the colors you see here are not correct. Okay. Now, first of all, the squiggle that you see starting up in the upper right-hand corner going south here, turning, going basically west, and then turning south again here. That's the Colorado River. So the Colorado River comes south off the Colorado Plateau here turns at East Point, the east wall of the Grand Canyon, basically flows west through the canyon, then turns again and goes south here to the Baja. Now, I don't mean to be silly or redundant, but it's important to say this. In order for the water to flow through the canyon, the canyon must get lower and lower. Agreed? Mm -hmm. Water flows downhill. Mm -hmm. However, if you'll notice this rather rusty color here, magenta, whatever you want to call that, yeah. I'm not quite sure your choice, it isn't that color. That's actually green. That's the Kaibab National Forest. That's a scrub forest that grows on a ridge that goes north and south here through northern Arizona. And so the trees show you the ridge. Now this is a scrub forest as the, as the water comes in off the Pacific, comes over the coastal range and the Sierras, it rings out a lot of moisture. It comes down over the high valley or over the high uh, desert of the areas near Las Vegas. But when it hits this ridge, it has to bounce up. And when it does, it drops just enough water to keep a scrub forest growing here. Mm -hmm. So let's think. Now, wait a minute. The water has to, to flow through here, and the bottom must get lower and lower. But this is a ridge. Well, does that mean that water flows downhill, then uphill, then downhill? I don't think so. So you're saying that if this river would have cut this whole thing, what, how did it ever get over this ridge? Right. So let's think about this and take the Bible seriously. Let's think about another explanation. Now, I had mentioned to you previously about Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9, being a chronology of the flood of Noah. Mm -hmm. It says, verse 5 and 6, God sent a complete total flood of the entire earth. The water is seen above the mountains. But as I explained, these mountains are 5,000 feet high or less, capable of being covered with one mile of water. Those mountains are eroded away and deposited as wet mud layers, which are the sedimentary rock layers that we see on the surface of the earth today. Mm -hmm. And that during that time of Noah's flood, this is just a big sandbar. It's a mud bank laid down by the flood of Noah. So, now, the Bible says, again in Psalm 104, verse 7, that after the earth is covered with water after the mountains that existed prior to the flood are eroded. They're deposited as wet mud layers. And this is just a, a sandbar mud bank laid down. It says, then the waters go away. But in verse 8, it says, then the mountains rose up and the valleys sank down to the place you established for them. In verse 9, he promises he'll never again flood the entire earth with water. Mm -hmm. Think with me. This is northern Arizona. Now, Colorado is up over there. After the waters go away, the Colorado Rockies are rising rapidly out of the ground. Now, these are wet mud layers. 
and they're rising out of the ground very rapidly. That's verse 8. Now, that means that the, the water in those wet mud layers is going to come out the ends of the layers. Now, if they go to the east and go towards the Gulf of Mexico, no problem. But if those are on the west side and the water is coming out and flowing towards the Pacific, but here it comes up against an earthen dam. This is a ridge laid down by the flood of Noah. Mm -hmm. Well, what's going to happen? This is an earthen dam, so that water is going to pool up behind this earthen dam. And the reason that the Grand Canyon is 1.2 miles deep when you look down into it is because you're standing on top of a ridge. People tend to think for some strange reason that when they see the Grand Canyon, because it's so big, they can't really see it all, you know, from one place. They tend to think that it's a canyon that's been cut into a plateau this way. But it's not. It's a square hole through a ridge. And what happens is the water comes in at 2,800 feet of elevation, flows through this ridge, and comes back out, having dropped 1,000 feet in the process. So... This is one of the books that we sell by Dr. Walter Brown in the beginning, Great Encyclopedia of Creation Science Materials. But this map comes from that book. Here's the Grand Canyon that exists today. Here's a ridge going north and south here. Mm -hmm. These are two great lakes that formed up behind that earthen dam as water is draining from the Colorado Rockies, so as those layers are being elevated. At one time, these waters covered 30,000 square miles. Mile. And then tra probably triggered by an earthquake. Now, it could have been pressure, but it's much more likely triggered by an earthquake because there's still earthquakes in the air. This earthen dam was breached, and those waters flowed through there and cut that canyon in a matter of months. Same thing is true of the gorge of the Yellowstone uh, in Yellowstone National mm -hmm. Park. You can see rapid cutting. The same thing is true of Niagara Falls. We can see and prove that the whole gorge of the Niagara was cut in only a matter of about 4,000, 5,000 years. Here we see, again, rapid erosion where these two great lakes punch through that ridge. Now, the basic scenario is the two great lakes, earthen dam, it's breached. But you can see this. You'll know that I'm not making this up. Now, this is a satellite photograph taken during the winter. The white that you see here is snow. Now, in this particular case, north is at the bottom. I know that's upside down, but north mm -hmm. is at the bottom. And so the white, the snow on the ridge, helps you to outline where the ridge itself is between these two red lines. Now, the Colorado River is flowing south here along the ridge. But you can see that it actually turns and goes through the ridge here and then turns there and goes to the Baja down that way. Mm -hmm. And you can see the Grand Canyon is simply the result of a whole lot of water and a little bit of time yep. and not the result of a little bit of water and a whole lot of time. Well, you know, out here just about 30 miles from where we are right now at Guthy, Colorado, it's just a wide place in the road. They had a flood in 1999, yep. which I was here, and I remember on the uh, news them showing a road that was washed out, and I mean there was uh, rock, granite rock, and in one hour's time or so, this flood came through and cut a hole that was 20 feet or more deep. Yeah, it was deeper than that. And it literally just gorged us. So are stuff. you familiar with what I'm talking about? Yes. And the process is called cavitation. But the faster water moves, the bigger the things it can move. Okay. But it was amazing that you could cut a gorge like that in just a very short period of time with a very small amount of water, really. If you're talking about something like what you're describing with these two great lakes, it would be um, 
totally understandable how this happens. That's just massive amounts of water moving very fast yep. all at one time can do a tremendous amount of work. And down in southwest Georgia, there was a, a dam that broke and, again, made a mini Grand Canyon in literally a matter of a week. Well, I had a uh, lake that I built on my property that was only about eight feet tall. Mm-hmm. And I, it was raining, and I was standing down there, and the Lord told me to move, and I moved, <laughs> and I saw the dam break. Uh-huh. And this water come, and it knocked trees over, and it cut a gorge mm-hmm. that was two or three feet deep in just seconds. And that's exactly what happens here. Uh, I've even saw it at a retaining pond at a nuclear power plant in Florida when I flew over with it at Cessna. I was flying over. They'd had a breach in just the retaining wall of their, their cooling pond. And it had just cut straight down like that. Mm-hmm. And, and think about it. When they take um, the steel gasoline tanks out of the ground uh, to put in the fiberglass tanks, what do they cut the steel tanks apart with? They can't use a torch because it would explode, so they use water. They actually use water jets to literally cut steel. Well, if you can cut a steel hmm. tank with a moving jet of water, imagine what you can do with millions and millions and millions of gallons of water, especially the higher it is, the greater the p- pressure. But you can cut a Grand Canyon in a matter of weeks or at most months. And that's, that's much awesome. more consistent with the physical evidence than the evolutionary story. Well, I'm very impressed with this. Let me just say to our viewers that I saw your DVD on the waters cleaved, and that's the reason I asked you to come on our program. This is not on that DVD, the one no, that we're this offering. is on one of Mount St. Helens in the Grand Canyon that we have available. That's a separate DVD, but this, all this material and all these pictures are still available. Okay, so this is available on his website, and I encourage you to check that out. And also, you've got just... A lot of different things. I saw, I don't know. We have know. CDs, DVDs, books, and we start with ages two. And so and what do you cover in these kind of things? We've already talked about the flood. You've talked about the formation of the Grand Canyon and, the, and shown the layers of Mount St. Helens. Mm-hmm. What other kind of evidences do you have? For well, we have eight, eight CDs on basic things if you're doing a lot of driving, but I have 19 DVDs covering 23 subjects. For instance, we cover things like how did people live to be 900 years old? And I show 19 medical and scientific reasons which allow people to live to be 900 under the environmental conditions that mm-hmm. existed only a few thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. I have two whole DVDs just on materials on arguments scientifically for a young Earth, young universe. You know, this DVD that I watched on the Waters Cleave, there was a lot more information and things on there than what we were able to discuss. I looked on his website, and I bet you there's at least 50 different subjects. I'm not sure oh, yes. how many. Oh, yes. And, and, and we have books for all ages, and we have general books and specific topics and, as well. And we need this verification, and I'm just unable to give you the scientific things. I can teach you from the Word of God, and that's convincing for me. But uh, we need to be able to arm ourselves with this information so that we can refute the claims of people who are saying that this is a proven fact that evolution is true and that all of these things are true, and it is not a proven fact. So I want to thank you, Grady, for doing this. Uh, It's really been good, and I believe that we have a God who loves us and created this, and He thought it all through. It is intelligent creationism.